you with us tonight. Uh, please take a Bible, if you have one, or reach for one if you don't, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're new here, if you're visiting, uh, our practice at Charlotte Chapel is to pick uh, a book of the Bible and just to work through it week by week. So uh, last week we started the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter written after the death and resurrection of Jesus by uh, the Apostle Paul. And tonight we are reading from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. If you've got one of the kind of reddish Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1144. Now before we read our passage tonight, let me, let me test you to see if you've been paying attention in the songs that we've been singing. Uh, let me ask this. What, what is good about the song, Man of Sorrows, that is not so good in... Lord, I lift your name on high, and Lord, reign in me. You think of anything? Let, let me accentuate a bit to help you. What is good about man of sorrows that is not so good about Lord, I lift your name on high, and Lord, reign in me? Does that help? What's it, what's, what are the two about? These ones are very individualistic, aren't they? Lord, I lift your name on high, and Lord, reign in me. Man of sorrows I like because it is, Savior, you showed your blood, defeated our sin. So we praise you. See that? Uh, Subtly, through a lot of the songs that we sing, we have begun to think of our Christian lives very individualistically, in a very isolated way. And I think as we read 1 Corinthians tonight, What the Apostle Paul wants us to see and how he wants us to think is that as Christians, we are very corporate. There is a togetherness about who we are. So let's read 1 Corinthians. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 17. And look out for two things. Look out for the amount of corporate language there is. And look out for the amount of times that the name Jesus occurs. Okay? The two things to be looking out for. These corporate words and ideas and the repetition of the name Jesus. Let's read from verse 1 together. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brothers, our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift, as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful." I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. 
my brothers. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yet I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Four, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this together. Our Father in heaven, help me please to preach tonight in a way that depends on the power of the cross, that is a demonstration of the Spirit's power and that boasts in you alone. May the way I preach or the way any of us listen tonight not render the cross unnecessary or the Spirit unemployed. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, did you notice how the Apostle Paul starts to speak about the church of God in Corinth? Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, immediately you notice something about what it means to be a church. There is a local expression of the church of God in Corinth, this particular place. But there is a worldwide and everywhere togetherness about the church. You see that? All those everywhere who call upon the name of Jesus. If you're new to Christianity, this is, a, this is an amazing thing to realize. That you can go anywhere in the world and find a brother or a sister. Amazing. You have a huge family. There's no such thing as an only child in the church. But you have a a worldwide togetherness. But that is localized. So verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. So although you have a worldwide togetherness with all Christians everywhere, there is a church family-ness to a local church that is gathered together. So look at the person next to you. Oh, most of you are so British, you're not even doing it. Look at them. If you are a Christian, and they are a Christian, then you are brother or sister. Wow. That is, what, what is the common thing between you? Well, what's the repeated phrase in verse 2 and verse 10? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that unites you and them together? Jesus. That you both call upon the name of Jesus. His name unites us more than our own names distinguish us. And so as Jesus said in the gospel, All right, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? 
Those who do the will of God are my brothers and my sisters. So actually, the person that sits next to you, if they are a Christian, has a deeper and a longer relationship than even your blood family. Because it is founded in the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a worldwide everywhere togetherness, but also a local familiness. I appeal to you, brothers. And Paul says, okay, if that is the case, then I make this appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, what? That all of you agree. He says, okay, if you are united in the same Jesus, my appeal to you is this, live out that unity. Agree. Uh, The word actually is that you would say the same thing. He wants them to be unified in saying the same thing. That is his appeal. It may be the origin of where we get the phrase, sing from the same hymn sheets. But what do brothers and sisters in Jesus do? They say the same thing. I think we can flick on the next screen. They say the same thing. But it's deeper than that because his appeal then reveals his aim. I appeal to you that you'd agree. Why? So that. See the so that? So that there will be no division and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. So not only does he want them to say the same thing, but he wants them to think the same way. No division and perfect unity. Now actually at the moment we... He's hinted at it, but we don't know what is the one thing he wants us to say. We're going to come to that. What is the one way he wants us to think? We're going to come to that. But you just see his basic appeal. If you are a brother and a sister, if you are a family united in Jesus, then say the same thing and think the same way. The person next to you has been given grace and has been enriched and has been gifted and is kept and is in fellowship in exactly the same way with Jesus as you are. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, agree. Now, we can make some application now before we even find out what is the one thing and what is the mindset. Uh, You are brothers and sisters. If you're new to church, maybe it's easy to come with the mentality, I need to prove myself to this group of people. Maybe you see us as colleagues and you think, okay, I need to, I need to get my foot in the door at Charlotte Chapel and I need to make, uh, make myself accepted by the people there. I hope you, you feel liberated from that. We're family. Uh, you can just come. You are already part of who we are. A brother and a sister, not a colleague to prove yourself to, but a family to enjoy. But actually, that also brings responsibilities with it, doesn't it? When a family suffers, they suffer together. When a brother is hurt, the family rally round. When someone new comes into the family, the family is to embrace them. So it's not that we should come to church in our isolated pods and not even grunt at the person next to us. But when a new person comes into the family, we embrace, well, maybe not hug them first straight away, 
Uh, you do the cultural things first. But it is that embrace of them. Welcome. When someone is hurting in the family, we get around them. We support them. So it is, it is a liberating thing. Hey, brothers and sisters, I can relax. I don't need to put on a show at church. But it's also a responsibility. That after the service, how are you doing? How's your relationship with our common Lord Jesus Christ? Can I help you? Can I encourage you? Can I mourn with you? We are brothers and sisters together. This is, let's tease out some more application of this. It also impacts our decision making, doesn't it? If we are a family, when someone makes a big decision, the family are taken into account. So if you're moving house or you're changing career or you're making big decisions, you think, how will this impact the family? Now, I wonder how much when you are making a lifestyle choice, a job decision, a house move, that you say, how is this going to impact my church family? Is this going to mean I've got more time with them or less time with them? Is this going to wrench me away from them or bring me closer to them? Do you bring into your decision-making the impact this will have on your brothers and sisters here? You just think, on an even trivial level, you're on Sunday morning, you're, you're really tired, and you hit the snooze button one more time, and the thought process goes, I could stay in bed. I, I won't be missed at church. That, that, that's, a, that's a wrong way to think, isn't it? It's, it's my family. If I don't go, it's not just that I'm the only one that loses out. We all lose out if you don't come. I'm preaching to the converted. You're here. But do you know what I mean? We, we need to stop thinking of ourselves individually, thinking, oh, I can just do what I want. We're a family. How does that affect my brothers and my sisters? So if you're a student and you're on the church search thing, you should put roots down in a family quick. Don't do the church flirt thing where you go around for six to nine months saying, I need to work out what church will suit me. Now, without a family, you will struggle as a Christian. And so early in your university days, you need to get buried down into somewhere that you can serve and where they will care for you. Uh, You need a family. It also shows us, doesn't it, that division is no small thing. Some of us in this room will know the pains of family breakouts or family feuds or family divorce. And just as it hurts in our blood families, division hurts in a church family, and it is miles out of place. We can't just put up with division, let it go under the surface and say, oh, it's fine. You know what Paul says? I appeal to you, brothers, that there may be no divisions perfectly united. Division is no small thing in a local church. We shouldn't just tolerate it, but at every level we should pursue perfect unity. So if you're here tonight and you know that you are not perfectly united to some or all in our congregation, if you've become content with a separateness or an avoidance, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, I appear to you brothers, sisters, that you would pursue complete agreement. So, the church of God in Corinth, what it's called to be. But Paul writes this letter for a reason. It's not into a vacuum. So we see in verse 11 the grounds, the reason for his appeal. Verse 11, 
my brothers. Some from Chloe's household had informed me that there are quarrels among you. The reason he makes an appeal to them is that although they're meant to be the church of God in Corinth, actually the culture of Corinth has infiltrated the church. seems that Chloe's household probably had some uh, work business in Ephesus, so they, they went to Ephesus, they bumped into Paul, maybe arranged to meet him, and they gave him an earful. Paul, this is what's going on in Corinth. And so Paul responds saying, okay, I've, I've heard that you're quarreling. He says, what I mean is this, verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. Now, what does that mean? Actually, we don't really know. It could be a whole lot of things. It may even be that these aren't real groups in Corinth, that Paul just uh, makes names to summarize the situation that's going on. We don't know. But actually, we can see what Paul is trying to get at. What has been the current of Corinthians so far as a letter? Did you notice it? It is all these plural things that we saw in our reading. The corporate togetherness, our, we, everywhere. So when you suddenly hear this intruder I into the text, I follow, I follow, I follow, I follow, you're immediately thinking this must be wrong. If Paul is about the church together, and this intruder I comes and I follow, you know that there is something gone wrong. The individualistic I has replaced the family we. Do you know the other problem with this? What has been the dominant name in 1 Corinthians so far? Jesus, 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 Jesus. Ten times in the first ten verses, Jesus' name is given. Suddenly, Jesus' name becomes one among many. Paul, Cephas, Apollos, Jesus. He's lost, he's relegated, he's reduced, he's forgotten to be just one among many. That's what's going on in Corinth. The individualistic I has replaced the family we, and Jesus becomes one among many. Now, this is the culture of Corinth infiltrating the church. Um... We know this. In Corinth in the first century, there was this group of men called the sophists. Uh, they were orators, public speakers, and they were the superstars of Corinth. Uh, they were the ones who were, you know, if you were a young woman, you would have wanted them to marry a sophist because they were the high classes. They were the high earners. They were the ones who had the big Twitter followings. Everyone says, I follow them. Um, from education to the law courts to entertainment, you would have gone to hear a public uh, orator, a sophist. And these guys were everywhere with their wise and eloquent words. And actually, they attached to themselves people called, they called disciples. So that they would get all these disciples, and the more disciples you had, the more fame and the wealth and the honor you would get. And so people would attach themselves to these orators, these public speakers, hoping that they, some of their honor and glory and fame would trickle down to them. Kind of a status-seeking hangers-on. You, you attributed yourself to one of these people and became their disciples. So much so that you would imitate them completely. So you could, you could tell who someone was following because 
They spoke like them. They put an accent on like them. They even dressed like them. And one person actually writes saying these guys, used, the disciples, used to walk, swagger like the person they were following. That's the extent of the culture of Corinth. Everyone is following these amazing public speakers. Now, we don't have that in Charlotte Chapel, but sometimes I think it would be quite funny. But can you imagine all the WPMers next Sunday turn up in a tweed jacket and speak in Paul Reese's kind of dodgy American Welsh accent? <laughs> I, I, I think there'd be... Or if another segment of the church turned up in John Williams' suit and bold blue shirt and spoke like, I'm from Peter Heed and all that. I think there would be a certain comedy to that. But actually, it's... That is the culture of Corinth which has poisoned the church in Corinth. This individualistic, honor-seeking, fame-loving has poisoned the church. These people who are hungry for honor, gluttonous for glory, pandering after prestige and fighting for fame. And it's all become about what I want and they've forgotten that they are meant to be a family. Corinth has started to set the pattern for the church. Brothers have started to become competitors. Jesus has been relegated. The cross has been forgotten. You know, these sophists, these public speakers, they were uh, nicknamed, it was said, they are like gorgeous peacocks. That's why they're described. But you know what? If you're all about being a gorgeous peacock, there is no place for the horror of the cross. And so as the church in Corinth go after these gorgeous peacocks, they are leaving behind a crucified Savior. And as as personalities are elevated, the cross is divided. Uh, The church is divided. The culture of Corinth has poisoned the church of Corinth. Now, I wonder if we sometimes have that Corinthian mindset. I wonder if too often we're actually dominated by that I, I, I. That church becomes about my preferences, my quirks. Oh, I didn't like that sermon. Oh, I don't like that style of music. Oh, I don't like that decision at the church business meeting. I, I, I. And it will divide a church. That when you make it all about me and we forget about the we, the church is divided. Maybe there's an application to those of us Maybe if we are more, uh, we, we like to lead, that we use our service in church as a means to serve our eagles. We want to become the gorgeous peacocks of Charlotte Chapel. We want the followers. That is a danger. Because as you pursue that, you are relegating Christ. You cannot take the church which was founded upon the humiliation of Christ and make it a theater for your own glory. We need to see that. Maybe for those of us who prefer to follow, maybe those of us who are more introverted, there is a danger where we attach ourselves to personalities in the church, hoping that we might get dragged along with some of their fame. Um, Maybe for the older generation, it can be attaching ourselves to previous pastors. Oh, I follow Redpath. I follow Granger. 
Maybe if we're the younger generation, it's, I follow the podcast pastor. I follow Driscoll. I follow Piper. You know, as personalities are exalted, the church will be divided and Christ will be forgotten. I don't don't know if that happens in the the student world in Edinburgh. I don't know if that's a conversation that happens at CUs. Maybe it is. I follow Reese. I follow Martin. I follow Anderson. I follow Sid Surf. You know, I love his personality. He's so funny. He's so biblically based. He's so blunt. I don't know. That needs to to go in the bin. (laughs) Because if we elevate personalities, we divide the church. Paul says the culture of Corinth has poisoned the church in Corinth. So what is his answer? What is his remedy? How is he going to sort this and bring unity from division? Well, his answer is the centrality of Christ for the church in Corinth. This is his answer to this infection of Corinthian mindsets. Two things that he does. Look at verse 13. I think we're on the next slide, Alistair. That's the one. In verse 13, he asks three questions that immediately get to the centrality of Jesus in his person and his work. Now, what Paul is doing here is asking them questions to teach them how to think rightly. You know, you can learn a lot from someone who's very wise by the questions they ask you. Because their questions are actually teaching you how to think. And so these three questions is Paul instilling in the Corinthians a Christ-centered way of thinking. Question one, is Christ divided? Now that question is meant to shock. It's meant to wake up the Corinthians. It's a little bit like the question he asks in chapter six. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? There's meant to be a shock in this. Is Christ divided? It's a horror of what's going on. Rather than uniting around the name of Jesus, dividing around other names has torn Christ in pieces. We are meant to see the horror of this. That rather than have a unity in the body of Christ, the church, the church has ripped Jesus to pieces. See how he takes just a cultural problem and he says, you've got to think about this in a Christ-centered, a Jesus-centered way. Is Christ divided? The tragedy in Corinth is that he had been by their divisions. Second question to help them think in a Christ-centered way. Were you, was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? What is the answer? No. No, he wasn't. Why would you attach yourself to someone who maybe baptized you or maybe could speak eloquently rather than attaching and pledging allegiance to one who was crucified for you? Paul wasn't crucified for you. Jesus was. I mean, stop and think about this phrase. Was Jesus crucified for you? Yes. That, that's the simplicity of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? Was Jesus crucified for me? Yes. So how could I 
leave him and pledge allegiance to another who wasn't crucified for me. If you're not a Christian here tonight, that is what it means to be a Christian. Christ died for my sins. Has anyone ever loved you with such a love? Has anyone ever loved you that much that they would lay down their life for you? Paying the penalty for the sin that you deserve. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Jesus was. So he has got to be the one that you claim and you announce and you think like. As Paul will say later on, we have the mind of Christ. Third question. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? What's the answer? No. We had baptisms here this morning. It was great. But we, we didn't say, now you are baptized into the name of Paul Rees. Now they were baptized into the name of Jesus. Why? Because baptism is uniting ourselves to Christ. That as he died, so our old way of life died. Our Corinthian way of thinking was crucified. There's a song in the charts at the moment that says, R.I.P. to the girl I used to be. I don't know what the song's about, but it's quite a good kind of explanation of what baptism is. R.I.P. to the me I used to be. He died. He's gone. Died with Christ. And in his resurrection, we are raised to a new way of thinking and a new way of living where we have pledged allegiance to a new Lord, a new King. Were you crucified? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. But you were baptized into the name of Jesus. So why divide over all these other names who are nobodies rather than the one who was crucified for you? If you're going to live rightly, Paul says you've got to start thinking with the mind of Christ, with the Christ-centeredness that he demonstrates in these three questions. But it's not just thinking the same way. Remember, Paul was desperate that they would agree, say the same thing. So he says in verse 17, okay, here is the one thing that I want you to say. Not only Christ-centered interrogation, but a Christ-centered preaching. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, I think there is a little clue there as to why they were dividing around these different people. It may have been that they were eloquent speakers, or it may have been that they, these were the people who did baptize them. But Paul says all of that's irrelevant. Here's the important thing. Here's the thing that you are to say. Here's the hymn sheet from which you are to sing from, Christ crucified. The good news of Jesus, that is the power of God for those who are being saved. What does Paul want us to say as a church? What are we to be proclaiming as a church? Christ and him crucified. A singular resolution. Jesus and nothing else. You know, if you're trying to use a Corinthian way of thinking, you will never use a cross. If you're trying to use an Edinburgh way of thinking, you will never use the foolishness or the weakness of a cross. But Paul says it is the power of God. It is the way that men and women 
become brothers and sisters who have been and are being saved. Not I, 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 but one voice saying Christ and him crucified. So Paul appeals to us, okay, think Christ-centeredly. Speak the Christ-centered message. And that's going to determine what we do as a church and how we do it. So that everything in the culture has to be pulled through this Christ-centered hole. The way we do things as a church needs to be sieved through the filter of Christ and Him crucified. So we may think, oh, there must be a better way of reaching Edinburgh than preaching. Must be a better way. Paul says, no, you've got to pull everything through Christ and Him crucified. And if that is a message of weakness and foolishness, then the method you employ will also be one of foolishness and weakness. So as we think rightly and as we speak rightly, we will become the church that he has called us to be as brothers and sisters. Do you know what? Let me explain just quickly why this unites a church. Because Jesus did not die for one brother more than another. That's why preaching the cross unites a church. Because you look at the person next to you and say, how were you saved? Jesus died for me. And you turn to the sister and you say, how were you saved? Christ was crucified for me. And they say, how were you saved? (laughs) Jesus was crucified for me. Great. We're united. I can't exalt myself over you. You can't exalt yourself over me. But we are level at the family, brother and sister level and level at the ground of the cross. There can be no place for arguing our view when we are united in how we are saved. There can be no way of clinging and clambering after personality and fame when we are all brothers and sisters saved by the death of Jesus. That's how a church will be united. It's what God calls us to be, and it's actually what Edinburgh needs us to be. That as they see us united, loving one another, by that they will know that we are his disciples. By that they will know that we are his church. Who bring this powerful and saving message to those who are perishing. Let me pray.